You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 388 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. Uh, Seth Miller hosting today because Stephen is, I don't know, he said he was busy. He didn't like me or something. Uh, <laughs> and I'm joined by Foz. How you doing, buddy? I'm well. He's going to go to the airport and admire planes that oh. he's not going to get on. Wow. <laughs> he's not here, so it's easy. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, some people just call that plane spotting. Well, I think for him, it's really more like gate spotting, right? You get to the gate, then you oh. change your mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you anyway, um, let's stop making fun of our friend and instead talk about some of the news this week. Uh, Singapore Airlines, the Chris Flyer program. Uh, oopsie. Are we surprised? No. Um, so the news here is basically with about 30 days notice, the carrier has said that it will raise rates on pretty much every award on an average about 10%. Um, Which it's not like they had super cheap prices to begin with. Yeah, there's that. Uh, There were a couple, you know, like everyone, they had some sweet spots on their award chart. But, um, you know, I I was never a huge fan of the Chris Flyer program. It had its value because you could wait list for premium cabin awards on Singapore Metal, which was nice, I think. Um, But also had like crazy rules like, a hard expiry timing on points, if I remember correctly. But they also had some cool program, cool things. Like you could do <clears throat> JFK to Sydney and stop in Singapore for like 11 months or 10 months. Yeah. If you find it safe. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, but that's a standard. I mean, not standard, but that's just a stopover, right? Or a connection. It's a stopover, right? but they would let you do it that long. <clears throat> yeah. Right. And they charge you JFK Sydney. Sure. I mean, I, if you could find inventory, in theory, United would have done the same back in the day, back when, you know, stopovers were free. Oh, I think, I feel like Singapore does a better job of opening up inventory for their own. For home metal. Yes, no, absolutely. And I, I, I think that was the real value proposition there. Yeah. Um, you know, am I surprised that they went up? No. It obviously, the timing of it sucks given how aggressive airlines were in sort of making, you are using the loyalty program and getting people to buy points to stay slightly more solvent over the last two years. Um, to have a deval come sort of right out of that is frustrating. Well, but how much <clears throat> does Singapore make on selling miles, right? The U.S. airlines are notorious for it, but I don't think Singapore is nearly as aggressive about it. I don't. They don't have quite the same co-brand partnerships, but they they do have a lot of partner by which I mean credit cards. Um, but they do have a lot of partners, and they still sell points. I mean, it's it is still a big part of the business. Any of the more mature loyalty programs do so does. Yeah, I just, I mean, I don't, I just don't see that many of them, so. Yeah, it, well, and you also don't live in Singapore. Uh, but, you know, it, it is, the program is more targeted towards locals than not. But it's, yes, it's, it's, you know, not that surprising, but the timing certainly, you know, I guess there's no time where I would say it's good to just raise rates, um, but it's unfortunate, no, but not a surprise. I, I think this is just the start, honestly. Well, I mean, you think, do you think it'll be straight, rate changes or do you think it's a transition more towards uh dynamic pricing both but rate changes need to happen right dynamic pricing is easy to pull off when you're uh in your own program sure 
Uh, but when you're doing cross-alliance stuff or cross-partner stuff, it, it, dynamic pricing is much, much harder. And I don't think they'll be able to figure that out in the near term. So I suspect that we'll see cross-partner increases. You know, the, the war chart's changing so that when you book through a partner, you'll see a higher price. But dynamic pricing is also, you know, something that the at least the U.S. carriers are pushing like crazy right now. Yeah. I mean, I we talked a little bit about the dynamic pricing idea back when, uh, I don't know, six or so weeks ago when, Starline said they were going to have their own sort of their, their own credit card, right? So you could correct Starline's points and then figure out how to redeem them across all the partners. And I was betting that that would mostly be dynamic pricing, but we'll see. We still don't know. Um, and that Starline, but, but by which I mean Starlines might finally come up with a dynamic pricing system that works between airlines, not just on home metal. Yeah, I mean we'll see. Yeah, which is arguably bad news in a lot of ways, except if you're. I don't know, stuck in Germany and trying to get to Western France and there's no award seats open by the last minute trip, hypothetically speaking. Just because they uh, come up with it, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be able to implement it. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's fair. I do know they've been trying for a little while, so we'll see. Um, Anyway, speaking of poor implementation choices and bad timing, uh, North Atlantic wants to fly from Berlin to JFK and Los Angeles. I Sure. I mean, listen, last, the last airline that tried long haul out of Berlin went out of business, so that's good news. They survived for a while. Yeah, Air Berlin was was in business for a while, but um, mostly flying long haul from Dusseldorf, ironically. Yes. Uh, this is one of those that I feel like every time anyone looks at it, it's like, God, Berlin really should have long haul traffic to the U.S. It's amazing they don't. There's such a big market there. Blah, 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 blah. And then like, you look at the catchment area, the you know how many people live close enough to the airport and all of those things. And then every time anybody tries it, the, it just fails miserably so it will be interesting and norris is showing up with 787 with a whole lot of seats in them so well at least they're going to jfk not newburgh <laughs> um even though they promised newburgh originally that 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 is fair um it's worth noting uh also norris is starting its i guess by the time this episode comes out will have had its first flight to jfk so it's inaugural week <clears throat> do we know how long it's on the ground in new york uh, the well, the first so the first flight is from Oslo, not Berlin, but uh, that one is just a couple hours at night. So well, we just need a couple of good afternoon thunderstorms to break it all apart. Oh yeah, a couple of delays, schedule falls apart. Bye bye. Uh, no, they their their operating schedule is actually way more conservative. I think they learned that from Norwegian uh, in a lot of ways. Um, they continue to my favorite is the LA operation is. Super weird flight times, like the Berlin to LA. Yep, three days a week, three very different flight times: early morning to early afternoon. Wonder how that makes sense. I don't know if it's just when they could get like gate space at Tibet or what, but um, and someone was saying they thought it might also involve the plane doing Oslo, LA, Berlin, LA, Oslo, like doing a zigzag for the okay. route, um, which also gets challenging for crew. I mean that's. Because you take a day off in between each of those flights because the trips are so long, right? I would assume you 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 got that becomes like a seven day trip or an eight day trip for a crew instead of you know a shorter out and back kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting how they make all this work. I mean, I'm sure they're trying to maximize or minimize their expense and maximize their return. Yeah. Uh, are they still doing T one at JFK? Who are they still doing Terminal One at JFK? Uh, I thought you said, somehow I heard Tijuana there, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> I said T1, not Tijuana. 
okay, but I'm just saying, you get just sort of some similar sounds there. It's like, no, they are not flying to Tijuana. Um, that'd be an interesting option. Uh, just give it to Yeah, they, well, they need traffic rights from Mexico that they don't have, and there's not open skies there. For anyway, um, I don't know. I think so, which is interesting because, yeah, I guess as they keep adding uh, flights there, where they're going to get gate space because especially at night it gets full. Yeah, because that was part of their problem historically was T1. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. That's uh, But, you know, the, the flights are still cheap. They st- also, of, of note, I think for the inaugural uh, Oslo JFK flight, there's still seats available at the like $169 intro fare. So it seems it did not sell out. Um, keep in mind that that fare is without seat assignment bags or food on board. So, and each of those, is, I think food is 30 or 40 bucks, and seat assignment bags are like $80 each. You have to bring your own seat cushion too. <laughs> From BYO seat belt. Yeah. Uh, I I'm not opposed to the ancillary fee, like super low fare, and then you know charge you know quote unquote for the stuff that people you know you only buy the stuff you want to use, whatever. But I feel like the numbers on this are taking that to quite an extreme level. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way I look at it is, it's one thing to do it on regional short flights where people have options, but once you're on a seven or eight hour flight, you're you're a captive audience. Just include it. Yeah, well, I mean, and for the food, sure. I mean, I, you know, counter to that, I would say is I still even, whatever, I still haven't eaten on an eastbound red eye out of the Northeast for years, but going to Europe. Um, but it's like, okay, fine, you want to charge me to check a bag. Wait a sec, that's $100. The, uh, I mean, the young woman next to me checking in for SAS coming over here got hit with a $119 bag fee for her first bag because she apparently bought the basic economy fare. Oof. Which I, you know, it, maybe a tire at the gate or at the airport or whatever, but she was she was confused. It's like, but my friends didn't have to pay, but they were, and then I got my boarding pass and stopped listening. Um, but it was a, like, I don't know, at some point those numbers get to be so much higher. I wonder if they're reasonable, but how do you, I, don't, I also don't know what, like, what number I would say is where I draw the line. Yeah, but is it really? Does it really cost them a hundred dollars to move a bag? No. And therein lies the challenge, right? But it costs them a lot more than one hundred sixty-nine dollars to move the seat. Yeah. So, but right. So I mean, again, yeah. Therein lies the challenge. It's a. It's not tied to reality, but it is sort of, and it's a gaming of things. What I, I think my my ultimate frustration with it is, it's really hard for a consumer to effectively compare prices. Yes. Right, and like. If you pay enough attention, you can approximate it. You can look at a number and be like, okay, it's that, but it's actually going to be, you know, X more. Um, but, you know, for this airline and Y more for that airline. But like, that's, it's super complicated. And I feel, and maybe it's just like the new numbers instead of, you know, add $100 each way for what it's actually going to cost. It's got to be add $200 each way for what it's actually going to cost. But it's, uh, and I, I find that frustrating because the comparing and the irony of that is like, the airlines kept saying, oh, we'll get NDC, and then, you know, it'll be the XML-based blah, 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 and all the data will be there, and the whole new shopping experience, and you'll just say, in the search, I want to have one bag here, or like one overhead bag and one carry-on and one check bag, and then each airline will provide the actual price of that to you, and it's been years, and none of them are doing it, that I can tell. So. And somehow, the 30-year-old computers in the back will be able to translate all this. Oh, yeah. 30? Have they upgraded? No, I was being generous. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. The the GDS platforms are ancient, and so are the PSS platforms. So yes, uh, that is hard. Um, and then there, there's a, you know whatever there's a middleware layer that sits in between that helps do all this stuff, but it's still crazy, hard to make work. So, um, GSC's on the inaugural San Francisco Brisbane flight. 
No, I do not. Bummer. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, United Airlines is adding that route. Did you see when? Uh, it starts with the winter season, I believe. Nice. Uh, so later this year. Uh, certainly of note is the, Austra- the Brisbane Airport put out its press release like 12 hours before United did. Oops. Uh, and explicitly stated that it was part of a uh, new market capture, whatever, subsidy program. So they're helping share some of the costs and revenue guarantees and whatnot uh, to bring new traffic to Brisbane. So lower risk for United certainly uh, can see why that was appealing to the company. Didn't Virgin Australia fly out in out of Brisbane to the States to LA? I think they did LA. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure that's gone now. So this is filling that void. Yeah. And Qantas from time to time flew uh, Dallas to Brisbane, but that's because the plane ran out of fuel. Uh, Oops. <laughs> No, that not ran out, but that was where they, I think they were doing tech stops on when the when the head fuel challenge is coming off of the longest flight, the Dallas flight. So, what's interesting is this flight goes beyond the winter schedule, so I guess it's year round. Yeah, presumably year round. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, listen, I it will be interesting to see what the U.S. Australia demand return really looks like. I think there's enough question about China and Japan and Korea right now that. For United, the risk is very, very low. They also like they have more fly bodies than they had in 2019, or they will with because the Pratt and Whitney triple sevens are finally all coming back, right? They have like more than 20 up and back already, so it's like halfway. So like they, they've got the wide bodies again, and so they can afford. They've got the schedule capacity to be able to do these things. So yeah, I mean, but is it a good use of the wide bodies? Right, that's a million dollar yeah. question. Since Australia's paying for it, we'll go with yes. Yeah, that, yes, obviously, if someone's paying for it, yes. But the question is, how much of it are they paying for, right? Especially with the price of fuel uh, going up as quickly as it is. You you know, even a seat guarantee of 20% might not make a dent in the overall operating ability. Yeah, that's, and that's, I mean, it's it's just one plane, but it is going to, it'll be the nonstop, the only nonstop on that round. So, speaking of subsidies, I, I would assume that the, Berlin LA flight also captured subsidies. I know that or I know. I'm I'm pretty sure that the other North flights to LA did. Um the Copenhagen or the Oslo one did. So uh I know it that LA did have a program out looking to help offset landing fees and marketing dollars and all those fun things that airports do to attract new business. So um how would you feel about flying on an airline that was making its own spare parts? Are they three D printed? <laughs> Does it matter? Uh, no, not really. I have a whole different issue with the 3D printing thing. We'll get to it in a second. Um, and it's not the airlines technically making this airport, It's but uh, Russian airlines are finding that some of their uh, consumables and whatnot, so like you know, galley inserts and things like that are uh, breaking and they need spare parts and they can't get them, so they're starting to manufacture them themselves in Russia without the original uh, blueprints. Basically, reverse engineering components at this point. If it's like galley parts, does it really matter? Well, so right, that's a fair point, right? Like, yes and no. You, it does matter because, like, the little thing that flips up that holds the galley insert in the in the galley frame is rated for 16 G crash and not ripping off. Right. So that, so that when you, when the plane crashes, that thing doesn't come flying out and hit you in the head, and that's what kills you instead of the plane crashing. Right. Um, and so, like, does any of that matter in a plane crash? Maybe, maybe not. But people do survive them from time to time. So, I mean, in some ways, no, it doesn't matter. But, like, if they're making, uh, replacing the little arm that holds a tray table onto a seat, right? Like, that's, is, there's safety implications of that. So, um, 
they're not making new engines yet or anything like that, but it raises the issue of, you know, just how safe are these planes to fly on? And also, like, will they fly, you know, could a plane that doesn't have fully authentic spare parts fly, like, even, you know, let's assume at some point that the war ends and the uh, sanctions end and Aeroflot's allowed to fly again to Europe and North America and whatever, would those planes be allowed? I mean, and that, who knows, right? Because that, that you know, opens up a whole new level of regulation. But the question I would say is, them making their own parts, is that better or worse than speed tape? Yeah. Right? Like So, like, to your point of a tray table, I've seen speed ta- uh, tray tables put together with speed tape holding them together. Right. They're clearly not structural sound at that point. Probably not, yeah. Yeah, there, there's no good answers here. Well, there's one good answer, but Russia's not going to leave Ukraine. So, um, yeah, there's no good answers here, which is really unfortunate. Um the other thing that came up out of this sort of cycle from Russia is that it's now talking about ordering a whole bunch of, I think it's MC-21s and SSJ-100s to sort of like 300 aircraft built in Russia to replace the Airbus and Boeing fleets because, you know, we can't trust that we'll be able to operate real planes anymore. Well, I mean, I guess it's good for the local economy. And if they can, I mean, the good thing Russia has going for it is that it's a ton of natural resources, so it's able to do that. Yeah, I, I mean... The original, like the original SSJ, was still a ton of Western parts, right? They were, they, the MC twenty one is there, there's now a version that's not, which uses Russian engines and and and. But um, even things like the navigational computers and all of the components, like just a lot of those pieces historically have been Western, you know, U.S. and European, uh, rather than entirely homegrown. And so there's going to be some interesting challenges to get that done. And then once again, you get back to the and when the sanctions end, will they be allowed to fly on them out of Russia? Look, I mean, who knows? The cockpits might look like DC-9, then, then it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Everything manual. Don't need yeah. to worry about technology. and oh. engages. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it, it does raise some interesting questions about what the future of aviation is going to be there. And also, I, I will say that uh, China finally stopped, announced that they were no longer going to let the stolen planes, the ones that were previously leased and now you know russia's decided not to pay the leasing on anymore they're no longer going to let those fly into china so that's an interesting small but significant interesting policy shift um no more covid testing to go to the united states that's exciting it is it's certainly easier for me to come home from this trip no more brain tickling yeah Uh, the thing i question and i i know it's obviously there's a lot of nuance in all of these discussions but it's like the planes are 100% full and the fares are through the roof. So, like, why does changing it now matter? Who's going to buy? How does that change the ticket sales? It certainly doesn't, doesn't affect the summer. I think the answer is no for the summer. Do you think the international flights are full? All the ones I see are not full and they're cheap. Interesting. Um, I, Domestically, so, yes. The guy who got a, right? Interesting, says the guy who got a pair of business class award seats at low prices. So maybe. Because uh. <laughs> yeah, most, most of the international flights I look at, even like a day or two out, they're like ridiculously cheap. Interesting. Yeah, I mean the report. I have I haven't been stalking too many because uh, I haven't been home. But looking at the you know some of the trips, it's they didn't. I don't think they were ridiculously cheap, but they certainly weren't the you know Y fare or J full full Y full J fare only kind of thing going on. Well, when I say ridiculously cheap, like I I, I think it was Heathrow to Newark, so for like three hundred four hundred bucks within three days of travel. I wonder if that's because of JetBlue. Although JetBlue doesn't really do one way fares, so. And, and I can't imagine that they'd be that United would give a shit about JFK and Newark. Yeah, that's a fair point too. Um, Pardon my language. Yeah, whatever. 
Um, we're allowed one every now and then. Uh, and then the last topic we had on the list for today, uh, for this episode, Comair, which not the one, that, not the Delta affiliate. I was gonna say, that, does that one still exist? No, it. Uh, they they uh, after that uh, accident in Lexington or whatever, wherever they kind of went on their demise and they eventually got folded away. Okay, yeah. So Comair, that was always. You know, when I was a wee lad, uh, very confusing to me that there were two different airlines, both called Comair, and one flew in the United States and one flew in South Africa. Uh, I have since learned, you know, to accept that such things are possible. Uh, the Comair from South Africa that was previously the uh, oldest private airline in Africa, I think. Um, and I say was because it had some uh, financial issues, and now the uh, the team that was brought into uh, administrators, that's how they do it. Like they bring in, you have to bring in outside people to handle the reorganization. Uh, have looked at it and and basically said they don't see it as a viable going concern, and that the only path forward is liquidation. So that's not good. No, but uh, I mean, is that are we surprised? Not really. It, so they flew for British Airways in out of you know Johannesburg. They had onward connections to a bunch of different places that were like Comair, British Airways by Comair. It was one of a couple sort of franchise agreements like that that BA has. The other one, there's a Sun something out of Denmark that flies little, little planes. Um, okay. I think I did a, like a J31 or a J32 on them back in the day. Um, but So that's just a weird structure. But they also tried to, in some ways, this is sort of the express jet story, uh, did they, they did their own branded ops. They were Kalula, which was sort of bright, fun, colored airplanes with low-cost, you know, ULCC type operation, Point-to-point service, fees for everything, low fare, blah, blah, blah. So it was a interesting setup for sure. Um, but yeah, that, so Kalula going out of business is in some ways arguably more significant. Um, but obviously South African Airways is still around with the government figuring out how many billions of rand to pump into it and see if they can keep it afloat. And there's also Airlink, which is the other now private airline or the only, I guess, major private airline running out of South Africa. And so they fly to a bunch of Domestic and nearby re- uh, international locations. And South Africa doesn't have any international ops, no, does it? It still it has international, with, but only within Africa. Okay, I've been to say long haul. Yeah, they go they go all the way up to I want to say Lagos and Ghana. So those are six or seven hour flights. Okay, but it's not not the over not the ten hours to Europe, not the fourteen hours to JFK or to Dallas or whatever those were. Right, absurdly long. I did that one in oof a while ago, but. Um, but interestingly, when I did it, I got to fly Comair too. We went onward to Mauritius, and I'm pretty sure, at least one way, that was a uh, Comair flight. Cool. So, because um, of a schedule change, maybe I feel like South Africans screwed their schedule and put us on Comair for one of them um, to fix it. So, anyway, um, it was then, weird landing in South Africa and seeing a bunch of BA tails. Yes, on some of their ships. Very. Like, but how did they get here? This is a yeah. long way from London. Um. Yeah, that was always very interesting, but not much longer, I'm afraid. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? No, I don't really have much this week. All right. Well, um, in the bonus topics, uh, bonus session for our Patreon subscribers, we got some discussions of smaller planes in the United States and pilot shortage issues, um, and maybe even some talk about some of those pilots getting a raise, which is nice for them. Um, and also how I got screwed by another airline on this trip and I'm trying to sort out how I'm going to get not home, but from Germany to France at a last minute shuffle because Welling sent a lot, sent me an email that lied. 
Um, so stick around for that if you're a Patreon subscriber. Uh, I do want to give a quick shout out to some of our newer uh, Patreon supporters, uh, Randy J, Ryan F, and Chris. Thanks very much for uh, contributing and joining us every week here as we ramble through the various bits and bobs that we think are interesting about the news. And uh, what else? Uh, if you've got questions or comments, uh, send them to Stephen. And or you know I guess the Twitter account at dots lines or more dots more lines dot com but really just send them to Stephen he'll he'll take care of that for us um, and he's not here to say no so with that we'll catch you next time take care. <laughs>